Welcome to the Art School Podcast. I'm Ken Goshen. Today I'm speaking with one of my favorite living painters, Will St. John. This is the point at which I read out selected biographical information that I find on a guest's about page, but Will doesn't have an about page. He doesn't even have a website as far as I've been able to discern. So I reached out to Will and asked him how he'd like to be introduced, and he provided me with the finest bio of all time. Quote, Will St. John is a badass artist. Women desire him. Strong men want to be him. The world's elite cultural institutions pursue him, but he eludes their advances. He's too busy being spectacular. Close quote. This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters, and especially my top supporter, Rick. I am on a mission to make extremely affordable, high-quality art education available to anyone who seeks it. If you feel like this is a cause worth supporting, you can do that at patreon.com slash kengoshen. By pledging just $2 of support, you'll be invited to six upcoming live painting demos. That's less than 20 cents per live painting hour. Not to mention all the video content that's also available for that same $2. The only way I can continue offering all of this at such infinitesimal cost is if many more of you decide to become $2 Patreon supporters and make it sustainable. So please visit patreon.com slash Ken Goshen if you'd like to go ahead and join, and my sincere gratitude to those of you who've already done that. And now I bring you my conversation with Will St. John. Will St. John, thank you so much for taking the time for doing this. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate it. I want to start with how I first became familiar with your work. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of you, of yours. Thanks, and so... Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a cool story, I think, maybe a little bit uh, taken from the yellow pages. So I was, I was hanging around GCA, they had an exhibition there, and I was geeking over a uh, drawing by your wife, Colleen, and thinking like, this is unbelievable, it's just incredible, you know, fawning over it as, as one would. And someone from GCA said, do you know that um, her husband is actually also an artist? And in my mind, I was thinking, what a depressing way to be like being <laughs> being an artist with with your wife being so 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 good it, it must feel like just terrible to constantly be kind of like in the, in, the, in the shadow of your spouse but then I saw your work and my jaw hit the floor and I I just realized that you two have such a such a huge amount of of creative output and and incredible skills under the same roof how does that feel it's explosive. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, the roof's about to blow off nearly every day. Um, I still do feel like I'm in the shadow constantly of my wife and, you know, it, it, it's troublesome. It's troublesome, but thank you. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you don't think, uh, too lowly of me. It's good that, you know, at least I can be on par. Um, but you know, it's hard actually. We were talking, um, about couples, you know, my, my wife and I were talking about couples and how some people feel more comfortable, like being in a, in a relationship with a creative person. Um, and others do not, because the thing is you have to kind of accept that 
it's not going to be all about you all the time. And I think for some creative people, like that's okay. Some can't handle it. Uh, some have to be like the, you know, they have to be the superstar. They have to be the center of attention. If like anyone is um, taking away from that, it's like deeply troubling to them. Um, but then some uh, accept and maybe even relish that they're part of a, a team and that, you know, you can work together and, uh, and it's okay if you're not like the center of attention, the, the, the superstar all the time. So uh, I think the benefits definitely outweigh the, um, the anti benefits, uh, at least in our case, it's working out so far. I'm glad to hear. Well, I I couldn't pick favorites between you two. It's it's it's. Oh both, come on, both, please. I, re, I, can. I won't I, tell anyone. You can you know, say it's me. I don't. I don't know if you've listened to my previous to my previous episodes, but I don't mince words. So, like, if I had something to say, I would I would say it. But it's it's absolutely extraordinary. And so, I wanted to ask, drill down on this a little bit more. Do you find that? Um, when you're working on a painting and kind of get stuck in some kind of, I don't know, one of those traps and you don't know where to take it. Do you find mm -hmm. that you two are like willing to help each other? Do you, do you actually consult about studio stuff? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you really get stuck, yeah. Having that second pair of eyes is, uh, is really crucial. Um, and you know, we, we learn from each other because the thing is where we started out, when we got out of school, we were kind of both painting in a similar style or we were trying pursuing the same kind of ideal. You might say we had gone to Rome together. We had done a lot of old master copies and studies and all this sort of thing. And we came back and we were doing work that looked very similar, but as you develop artistically, you find your own style, you find your own identity over time And one starts to go in this direction a little bit and the other starts to go in that direction a little bit. And that's kind of where we've been for the past few years. But what's interesting about it is that instead of pursuing the same territory simultaneously, one's going out over there and you could be like, okay, what did you discover out there in that domain? I'm over here in this domain. And then you can kind of come back and, and compare notes mm. because I know that, Um, as we both develop, like we have different tastes in things that like we like, and there are certain artists, she'll be like, Oh, you got to check out this. And I'll just be like, no, no, no. It's, it's... And then I'll be like, Oh, you got to check out this. And she'll be like, no, no. Or, or sometimes you think, Oh, that's great. Maybe I can incorporate that into my work. So I see things of hers in the studio that she's working on right now that I'm just like, how I, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to mm. steal that, that little thing there, that little thing there. So having an artist that you respect in close proximity is a great way to amplify the information and the knowledge base that you have to draw from at any given moment. Mm. I, I have to ask, my curiosity will not, will not uh, permit me to, to not uh, go into what you just said. So what are, what are a few artists that you find very inspirational that perhaps Colleen kind of looks away, you know, she's like, oh, I don't understand what you find in this person's work. Well, I mean, I'm definitely more um, uh, more traditional leaning, and I really like the older painting more, uh, whereas she's like looking a lot more towards modern painting, contemporary artists that she admires. 
I, I tend to like things that are sometimes on the little bit of the frilly side on the cheesy side. Like I, I'll look at pre-Raphaelite painters and just kind of like just gush over them. And she looks at it and for her, it's too, it's too feminine. It's too decorative, but I, I love that sort of thing. And uh, she's drawn to artists that are like, she calls them more masculine artists. That doesn't necessarily mean they're men. She really likes Jenny Saville, for instance, mm. who does these obviously huge monumental figures. She's almost like Michelangelo-esque in mm. her monumentality. Uh, so it's funny that her, my wife being a, a, a woman is drawn to this more sort of masculine macho big painting thing. And, and me being a man, I'm more drawn to this, I guess, more feminine and, and delicate and um, all that sort of thing. So it creates an interesting tension, interesting dynamism. Wow. That is, that is fascinating. I'm so happy that I asked that. Um, so maybe you touched on the pre-Raphaelites, perhaps this would be a great segue into you listing some of your greatest influences, both living dead. Like who are you looking at these mm. days for, for uh stylistic input well I, I just this morning i was really trying to get back into titian because uh i look at these tashin books are you have you seen these tashin books mm-hmm. they're, they're amazing so you know i have like the vermeer book and the rembrandt i look a lot at 17th century painting and a lot at dutch masters and that's pretty much my go-to like gold standard because uh, i feel like they have really the most to teach almost out of any painters in history. I look at Vermeer. I mean, like every night I'll just cozy up on the couch with a cup of coffee. I'm just like looking through these big Tashin books. And no matter how many times I look at these paintings, I'm always seeing something new every single time. And I'm always taking notes, mental notes, and they help me um, solve problems on a day-to-day basis in terms of my own work and how to approach this, how to approach that. Uh, so I find that to be extremely beneficial, but all of those great masters, they, they're really coming out of Titian. And, um, I find that while Michelangelo was such a huge influence in the Renaissance, the painters of the next generation, the Baroque painters, uh, Rubens and Van Dyke and Rembrandt and Vermeer, all these guys are, I think, more influenced by this kind of Titian-esque uh, notion of painting, which is more painterly painting and enjoying the essence of paint, color, texture, edges, all these things uh, over drawing, which is what Michelangelo was known for predominantly, is his, uh, at least in his paintings, is his drawing sense. He was mm. an incredible draftsman. Uh, but Titian ended up being more influential. So it, I find that he's kind of like the source of so much of that flowering that came out of the 17th century. So I'm going back to him now Mm. and I'm trying to study him and see what of his can I incorporate into my own work. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Amazing. 
and and you actually you beat me to the punch so i had here in my notes somewhere down the line to talk about but you kind of bring it up that um well we're going to get to talking about your your time at gca and how that that influenced you but in general my perception of the gca if you could call it a style or or aesthetic mm. convention it's very much uh rooted in the in the 19th century French tradition the way that I look at it and I see and I see your work and 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 a few other people's work kind of going a step like a step backwards towards the mm. Dutch golden age and I wanted to say like how how did it feel to be more like Dutch inspired um in a in a in a French academician setting mm. did you did you feel that contrast because these these are pretty different approaches was there any kind of conflict there mm. uh maybe for a very brief time um, there's when you're transitioning from one thing into another you can always feel like a little bit of a, a conflict um, but then you, you get over it I mean I think the 19th century is a really good entry point for people who um, maybe don't have much acquaintance with like traditional painting Like 19th century is just great to get people in the door. You have Sargent, you have Bouguereau. It's very accessible. And I find that young people in particular, um, they get really fired up about the 19th century. They love it. Uh, and the history of it, the salon culture, everything is, is really fascinating. Um, but for me, and I was the same way, um, but that's not necessarily where I want to end up just because I really think that 17th century art and Renaissance art is, is superior. Um, now, of course, when you're starting out and you're trying to figure out what to look at and what to like, it all just seems so unapproachable and incredible. It's difficult to draw distinctions um, between eras. I mean, if you're like 20 years old, you're, doing your first cast drawing or something, you're going to look at Bouguereau, you're going to look at Rembrandt, you're going to look at Vermeer, you're going to be like, they're all fucking amazing and beyond anything that I can do right now. So it's like being on the forest floor and looking up at really tall trees. Which one's taller than the others? You can't tell when you're at the bottom, right? And that's where we all start. But as you grow and develop and as your taste gets refined, as you learn more, you start, your, your perspective starts to elevate. And you start to be able to see where certain growths uh, just simply go higher than others. And I think that uh, the Dutch are, they're really up there. And I think the Italians are really up there. The French in the 19th century, I'm not so sure. I think they're excellent, of course, but I don't think that they're as good. I agree 100% uh, with poss possibly the exception of Ang, but that, mm. that might be my, my private obsession. But I would love for you to unpack that if you could. What makes, what makes these paintings, the, the Dutch Golden Age, the Renaissance, superior to those mm. of, the, of the 19th century France? So. That's a really good question. It's a really hard question to answer. I think that what happens at the end of the 19th century is that you have the introduction of, of photography Also, the introduction of science that we're looking at reality through a different lens in a post-scientific age. People start to be able to look at reality in a more objective way, quote-unquote objective way, that, that someone like Raphael or Michelangelo, they could never really have looked at nature in exactly the same way as someone in the late 19th century who has photography and science and all this 
this notion of objectivity just didn't exist in the Renaissance the way that it did in the 19th century. So there becomes this kind of obligation to truth, visual truth, which is um, sometimes just realism. Mm. So I feel like at the end of the 19th century in particular, that will to truth starts to exclude and push out some of those more um, like artistic qualities that you see in the Renaissance. It's very difficult to be a Botticelli in uh, the late 19th century because, and even today, I mean, even today more than anything, because you look at the, because the proportions are goofy, right? I mean, you look at Botticelli and it's just like, it's not realistic. So once man has been exposed to like the truth of the way nature really looks. It's harder to suspend disbelief and allow those kind of more artistic qualities of the Renaissance to shine through. So I think that it's this kind of interplay between the truth of the real world as it looks. That's what the camera shows us. That's what realism shows us. And then more artistic qualities, um, you might call the more abstract qualities of, of design, for instance. Uh, and a lot of those abstract design qualities, I think, got suppressed for realism to mm. show through in the late 19th century. And then in the 20th century, there was a complete opposite reaction where they said, we're sick of realism. This is getting in the way of those abstract qualities that make art so beautiful or make art art. And then you get Matisse, you get Picasso. But they went so far in the opposite direction, they completely excluded reality altogether. Mm. They're not looking at nature at a certain point. Picasso isn't, not, not really studying it. Um, he's just working in a purely abstract sense. So uh, we have to find some kind of marriage between those things. And I think it's really difficult. I don't think that's something you just do. I think it can take like a whole lifetime to figure that out and hit the nail on the head. What is the balance between being faithful to the natural world that we see, but also incorporating art concepts, the abstract design concepts in a way that makes something beautiful and makes something mm. art and not just a stale recreation of reality? Wow. I can't, I can't explain how much I love that analysis. And it also, it also touches on the person that I, I wanted to exclude prior, Ang, with all of his goofy mm. proportions. I feel exactly. like that, that's one of the reasons that I don't consider him, you know, kind of like you could say he's not in the box. He's not in the French Academy box uh, mm. altogether, because when you look at an Ang from a distance, it just immediately looks different. And it looks like his personal work. It's something, something super unique. And I wanted to ask you about something that... I, I, something additional that I, I think might contribute to what happened to re the realist classical tradition in, in uh, 19th century France. Do you think that it has something to do with the institute in with the rising institutions for teaching art, you know, in the Baroque, if you wanted to study with Rubens, you had to be like in the Rubens workshop or in the mm. Rembrandt workshop in the, I don't know if Vermeer had a big workshop. I don't think he did, but then France, uh, the, the French tradition comes along and, you know, institutions like the Ecole de Bouzard, they kind of rise. And then you get into a situation where a lot of people are in a classroom studying in, a, in an organized fashion. Mm. Um, do you think that did something to kind of put a stale flavor on, on, on that, uh, on that period? Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's a really good question. I'm not sure. I mean, 
it does change things. I think the contact that, um, that the students have, like, uh, that they would have working with a master that being in a workshop, I think it's like a space apart from that. Um, and sometimes being in an atelier, um, I don't know, people can get like weird ideas cropping up because it's just you and your peers and maybe the master and his presence is not like as felt, mm. right? Whereas if you're in a master's workshop, uh, you're in such close contact with him. You're having to assimilate his style, his particular style, because you would be working on his paintings. Like Rubens, if you worked in Rubens' workshop, um, you're not really studying human proportion drawing from life. <clears throat> your, your goal of study is to really replicate his his style and his way of thinking and his way of his art essentially. Mm. So they would be learning all the things that we learn to some degree, but also the more artful side is, is tantamount. Whereas in an academic environment, the artistic side is, is pushed back a little bit because you're not really learning the specific style of a specific master and their interpretation of reality. You're kind of learning a, maybe a kind of generic realism Mm. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I do, and I don't want to place the blame or whatever at the feet of like the rise of those institutions, because I do think they're still useful even today. I think that type of training is very useful. Um, but uh, I don't really know exactly why things changed. I think it's part of a different worldview uh, that may even be greater and more influential than just a circumstantial thing like an institution versus a, a workshop. It might be part of it. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm surely not uh, not going to place the blame there. I just wanted to bring it up uh, just to hear uh, if you have thoughts about it. And of course, something that cannot be ignored is how, you know, everything that, that started the neoclassical tradition in, in France was really a response to all the nonsense that was happening during the Rococo. So it's like whenever, mm. whenever you look at, at an artistic movement, it would be, foolhardy to ignore what happened before it and 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 how True. it actually is is a response to that so as a response to the decadence that came before it you know the the somber quality of of somebody like Proudhon or or Jacques Louis David is uh is almost radical today we look at it mm -hmm. and it feel and it feels like it feels like quiet but it was like a deafening kind of quiet back in the day I must imagine that has mm -hmm. uh must have stirred a lot of conversation so uh hindsight hindsight needs context in order to be Uh, applied responsibly. I think I want to take this conversation in, in a direction that might be most interesting to our listeners and also to me being such a fan of your style. Thank you. What, what, what do we need to do, all of us out there? What advice do you have if we want to paint kind of like you? What was your journey uh, towards um, kind of acquiring all those incredible skills that you possess? How do we steal them? Uh, I, I wish I could... I wish I could condense it down to one thing, Ken, but it's really just, it's, uh, no, uh, it, it's, it hasn't been a direct journey. Uh, and it, I, I had many different experiences with different ateliers, different teachers, and I feel like it hasn't really stopped. I mean, um, I, I don't think what I do or Colleen either is really the product of just one place. And I, that's one of the things that uh, her and I really had in common is that we both met at Water Street Atelier. We're studying under Jacob Collins. 
but we both had this kind of background where we had been trying to learn this art thing for a long time before we even got there in the first place. Right. Mm. She had studied with Sam Attaway, this amazing artist since she was a teenager. Um, I went to normal college. Uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it. It wasn't an art school. I studied creative writing. I studied with Nelson Shanks uh, in Philadelphia. I studied at Studio Escalier in France uh, with Jacob Collins, of course, and did a lot of independent research and study for years and years on my own. And I still do to this day. Um, so it's not really, it's a difficult question to answer because I wish I could lay it out in a way that's sort of systematic because, you know, you could design a curriculum right? That's what teachers do is they design a curriculum. And I think, well, how would I design a curriculum to get people to a high level as fast as possible? And I would come up with something probably like GCA, but I still think that's not enough. It's, it's, it's a whole, it's, it's almost like a mindset you have to have in your daily life as a kind of like habit and practice where you're constantly looking for information and for clues as to things that you can incorporate into your into your practice. And, uh, the only thing I can say is that I, you know, I try and walk around with my eyes open and assimilate useful information that I can put into my painting wherever I am, whenever I am all the Mm. time. If I'm on the subway, if I'm reading something, if I'm on Instagram, whatever, I'm just looking for what can I put into this stew that is my art, whatever that is, whatever it's going to be. And, you have to have a good filter because you come across a lot of crap. And I feel like a lot of people, myself included along the way, you're going to get mired down in some crap information or something that you think is going to be useful to you, but it's not. And you could potentially go down a blind alleyway of pursuing something or someone or whatever that you think is going to be useful to your goals, but it's not. So being able to separate like the good and what's useful to you and your, cause you're creating yourself, you're creating a self and artistic and identity, separating those things is, is really crucial. And that's um, exercising judgment. Mm. So we constantly have to be in the state where we're absorbing information and then we're exercising our own judgment, which is like this critical faculty to decide what is going to be useful what can I take and what should I just leave? Just what should I discard? That can be your own personal experiences. This was useful to me. This was not uh, down to things that you just look at and things that you like. Uh, But I think about that a lot. I know that's not a direct (laughs) answer to your question, but that's kind of where my head is at a lot of the time. We're not looking for direct questions. We can go, we can go as poetic as needed. And I want to, I want to follow up and say that, I, I love that answer and I love that approach. And I also relate to what you said about GCA to those of us listening and for some reason don't know what we're talking about. So GCA is, is Grand Central Atelier here in New York. It's a, it's a great um, atelier founded by Jacob Collins, a fantastic painter. And if I, may, if I may kind of characterize what's going on there, it would be like a kind of like a classic French-inspired atelier framework, a four-year program, very rigorously focused on um, painting from life, painting the figure, painting still life. And I think uh, students spend a few years drawing before they transition into painting. If I, I don't know if I got that right. Um, but essentially, 
I mean, I, I went through a program in, in Israel at Hatachana School, which is, it's, it may, it's not exactly like GCA, but it's, it's, it's in, it's in the, it's in, it's in the neighborhood. Um, and, and I agree with you that these, these programs are really, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to start learning how to paint, finding one of these programs and joining it is absolutely essential and probably the, the, the best way in. But I also agree with you that is, is not, it's, it's, it's almost required, but not sufficient. So if you could put your finger on maybe for those of us listening who are currently at these institutions uh, anywhere around the world, what should they be doing while they're studying to supplement? Like, where are the gaps in that program? And what kind of responsibilities do these students still have um, to take their creative vitamins to supplement their artistic nutrition? That's a really good question. I don't know what you can do simultaneously because I kind of tend to think you got to do one thing first and then the next thing after that. But uh, if you look at two models of education, one, you have the atelier model that you've just described really well. And then on the other hand, you have like the university art model of education, which are, we all have some familiarity with that. Uh, and everyone has their horror stories about like how expensive it is, how they don't teach anything, da, 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 da. Uh, but that being said, there is one thing that they have a kind of corner on or that they understand that the ateliers have not grasped, and maybe it's not the place the ateliers, but it's that in the university, they teach you to find your voice, okay? And that is, it's kind of like a cliche now, it sounds corny, um, but when you enter the marketplace with your product, Ken Goshen's paintings or Will St. John's paintings, at the end of the day, you know, that product has to be differentiated within a marketplace for people to tell what it is. So art stars, uh, whether you like their work or not, whether it's Cause or Damien Hirst or John Curran or Jenny Saville, they all have an individual style. Picasso has an individual style. This is incredibly important. Rembrandt has an individual style. If you think that like in Rembrandt's time, they weren't thinking about finding your own individual style and differentiating yourself in a marketplace, you're crazy because they were always thinking this way to some degree. So the universities, they specialize in that. The problem is they tell you to jump into finding your own style before you even know how to hold your pencil, let alone paint anything, you know, mm -hmm. paint a banana. So People, young people who have no very little art training start jumping into this expressive, you know, they're expressing themselves, they're trying to find their own style, and they're trying to develop their, their, um, their brand, so to speak. Uh, I think too soon, I think prematurely. Mm. I think you have to learn some degree of fundamentals. And you have to learn some patience and some discipline and some academic rigor, some Uh, appreciation for studying nature directly. I think all of that, whether it's four years or six months, should happen first. It should probably happen when you're a teenager, to be honest, if we're really doing it right. It should start to happen when you're a teenager. And by the time you're, you know, in your early 20s, your fundamentals are solid enough that you can start to explore the creative side. You can start to explore your brand. You can start to explore your voice. Mm. And I think the criticism that a lot of ateliers get, and I think part of it is, is valid, is that it creates a kind of generic style of artist. And that's kind of what it seeks to do. It doesn't really seek individuality. And I think that's okay. 
Um, but I do think that once you have your skill set, you have to search for some kind of originality or some kind of unique qualities to who you are as an artist, because that's ultimately what people are going to be buying. Mm. People are not buying a generic art style that comes out of school of da 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 da. School of Rembrandt is not as valuable as Rembrandt, right? School mm-hmm. of Van Dyke. Look at that at auction. I mean, it's going to be like, you know, $2,000. You could get a school of Van Dyke. No one cares because they know that it's just a student imitating the style of someone who is more significant than them. Okay. Now that's not a bad thing. That's where you start. That's where everyone starts. That's where Rembrandt started his early work looks like school of Peter Lastman. The early work of Van Dyke looks like the school of Rubens, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to start in this imitative derivative way. Uh, All genius historically springs out of imitating one's master. And the problem with the university uh, model is that they don't want to have this imitative period. They sort of cut that out. And if, if they have it at all, it's just too brief to actually allow for anything significant to develop. So I think it's a mistake if the atelier people turn up their nose too much to the university program and say, oh, I don't want to develop my own artistic style. You have to eventually. And it's a huge mistake for the universities to dismiss academic training as being something that's valuable because it teaches you so many things about how to be a professional artist, the patience it requires, the discipline it requires, the focus it requires, all of those things are just invaluable. And the atelier, I think, teaches them better than a university. So I think some kind of hybrid model of education uh, might be in the future or not. I don't know. Wow. I really, I really love that analysis. And it, it, it hits close to home because it sounds almost like the the model that I went through, then perhaps my style should be better at this point because <laughs> I've done through it's like, it's not easy. It's not easy. Um, I've gone through like from the most disciplined to the least you could say, because I, I did military service, then an atelier program, and then like Parsons school of design. So it's kind of like from the, from the, everybody tells you what to do and you just follow orders to people just saying, express your inner, whatever. And it, it's, it's absolutely, you, you, you really touch on it beautifully saying that it almost tests different part of your personality, different mm-hmm. muscles, and all of them really need to get developed at some point, though I'm going to insert one caveat and ask you what you think about it, because I, I went into Parsons thinking that this is the kind of stuff that we're going to be discussing, you know, how to develop your personal voice, develop your personal style. Mm. And until this day, you know, I, and this is, this is, this is the top art school in the country. And I don't, I don't really think they focused on that, or at least I don't Mm. think they focused on it very well. So Mm. if we could give, whether it's advice to the universities or advice to, to students, how does one develop Mm. their own style? Like what's the kind of stuff that let's say you want to, you want to, I'm sorry that I'm putting it in neat little boxes, but mm. it's my, it's, it's least, at least it's my attempt to do so because uh, part of what I consider to be my mission is trying to get all these abstract concepts and, and, and make them try to shed some clarity. Let's say I can spend 
one day of my week developing my style. How does that day look like? What do I do? Do I go into the studio? Do I go to the museum? What, what's, what, what does that quest look like? Because people, I think, don't even know how to approach it. I think that is, uh, I don't know. I really <laughs> don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I can say that um, the, the analogy I use when I think about it and I'm still in the process of it. I think till the day you die, you're, you're still in the process of exploring your art. Um, but I kind of think of it as like, you're in a completely dark room. You have no idea the dimensions of the room and it's pitch black. You have a little box of matches, a little pack of matches in your hand. You light a match it illuminates maybe one foot out of your space that you can see. You walk over a little bit here, you walk there, you're tripping over this, you're tripping over that. You still don't know where you are, then the match goes out. You basically do this over and over until you start to build a mental picture of the space that you're inhabiting. Mm. Um, I find that every time I do a painting, it's like lighting that match. It just shows me a little bit more of the kind of interior of the space that I occupy that is me. Okay. Mm. How vast the space is, I don't know. I only know the little bit that I've explored through like the number of paintings that I've done so far in my life. Mm. But I'm going to keep doing that until I find, maybe you find, you start to understand, oh, well, it's kind of shaped this way. There, even though I can't see it, even though the light will never be turned on, I start to say, oh, okay. So you start to understand the lay of the land a little bit. You can start to explore a little bit some of the nooks and crannies and the little crevices and things that you had no idea. But when you're starting out, no matter who you are, I don't care if you're Rembrandt, Picasso, or whoever, you're in that dark room and you can't see an inch in front of your face. You're like, what is my style? What is it going to be? I don't fucking know. But you have this ability to try to, you know, and it just, it's just a little flash. Mm. You take notes of the space, try and understand it. Uh, that's how I think of this sort of creative journey. I know it sounds really cliche, but that's kind of how I, I visualize it in my mind and how it's kind of been mapped out slowly, painstakingly over the years. Um, yeah. Wow. I, I love that. So there's like a trend happening whenever I ask a question that starts the answer to which starts with I don't know we're about to get something really great after that <laughs> so maybe I should continue with my with my obscure obscure questioning how does a day in your studio look like uh well I I'm in like a nine to fiver um although because of uh Colleen and I have a show coming up in September I've been trying to put in some longer days uh I live in Williamsburg. Where are you, by the way? You're in New York. Astoria, right? yeah. Okay. Is your studio in your apartment? Yes, it is. Is yours? Yeah. Uh, no, uh, we're in Long Island City Studios in Brooklyn. We've been here for a long time now. And uh, gosh, what's the day look like? I pretty much just get here by nine, get my coffee, start mixing paint. I paint till, you know, one o'clock. I find that the morning is really the... Um, the sort of most like fertile time and really like the most focused and the focus kind of declines as the, um, as the day goes on. So in the afternoon, like I try and keep it a little bit lighter in terms of what I hope to accomplish. Uh, but I always just try and set like little goals, little painting goals for the day. I'm going to mm. do this part. I'm going to do that part. 
And using all my focus in short, relatively short bursts of energy, I try and just knock that out the best that I can mm. and be done with it and then do something else. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's creatively healthy to have like things hanging over your head, right? Like, like I did this nose, but I did kind of a half-assed job and I know I got to go back and fix it. <laughs> no, mm. that doesn't work for me at all. Um, and in fact, I painted like that for years and I found it exhausting. And I think that if people pursue that way of painting, it's going to, it's going to destroy them eventually. <laughs> so uh, like, for instance, if I'm like, I came here yesterday, and I was like, I have to paint this eye for this demo. I'm going to do a, zo a zoom demo. And the goal is to, well, I spend like three hours and just paint the best eye that I can in that amount of time and then just be done with it and be done with it. And I had this resistance to that for so many years because I was like, I, I can't, I just, something in my mind was like, you can't paint a great eye in one sitting or in two sittings, underpainting and overpainting. For some reason I had this expectation in my mind that everything required many, 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 many layers, many, you know, struggles, many passes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then I started to understand that, no, I can actually push something really, really far and make something really, really good in one session. If I just focus on the one thing, that one task. And I mean, it's amazing if you have that focus, if you have everything set up for your success, you really can do it. And then just go on to the next thing and do the next thing as well as you can modest little goals. And then I find that like the paintings after the accumulation of these modest goals day in and day out start to form and start to take shape. They start to get finished. And uh, yeah. And it's just that year in and year out. I love it. Um, so I'm just, I, I, I kind of, I kind of try to follow the same, the same practice. It doesn't always work out neatly for me, but I know that it's not I, always I, neat. I, yeah. it's, it, no, it's not always neat. Um, but what inspires me when I try to work that way and try to convince myself to work that way mm. is I'm almost imagining what people had to do, like what people had to do when they were working on frescoes, you know, when you're mm. working on a fresco, you mix all the colors, you know, and then the cement is, is, you know, you have a set amount of time. You want to block in a part of the wall, be done with it. And then next day you, you do the, the adjacent, you know, neighboring 100%. side of the, of the wall. And when I, when I explain that to students and when they, when they try to do that, the first question that comes up is, how do I make these puzzle pieces come together, right? Mm. This is, this is, I feel like this is where everybody's personal style really shines because people have different solutions to this problem. But essentially when you're going in one day, you're painting a finger, then you're painting an eye, then you're painting uh, the lips. How do you make sure that the different person that you are each day, you know, mm. we paint a little differently. We use maybe slightly different colors. How do you make that thing still come together to a wholesome whole? Mm. Maybe it doesn't even matter. Mm. I mean, I, I've thought of that same thing as well many times. And, and the fresco analogy is something that I think of to this day. Um, because, I mean, if you screw up that piece of fresco, they would have to literally cheap, chip out that part of the ceiling, the plaster, and then replaster that whole area out. So it's like there's a lot of pressure on the day's work. But in terms of like the seaminess, you know, or the seamlessness of making a painting, it's something that I pursued for so many years because I thought it was so important. And it's very easy for things not to sync up 
And then I started thinking, who even cares? You know what I'm saying? But, but maybe it's because I've acquired a certain facility with making things sync up that you sort of take it for granted. Uh, but I, that being said, I just don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if everything doesn't sync up. And if you are a different person from this day to the next, and that maybe somehow like your painting reflects that, that might make the painting more interesting than if it's all sort of unified under the same vision. I think that can be overrated to some degree. But uh, having a plan, having, in, in my case, I have a sketch and I invest a lot of um, faith in the sketch. So I'll always start my painting with a sketch, usually about like nine by 12 or 11 by 14 inches. And I try and get like pretty detailed into it uh, these days and work out all of the problems that I'm gonna, gonna experience in the painting in the sketch. So when it comes to working area by area, I always have the sketch to refer back to mm. uh, because when you have a, a piecemeal approach to painting, people always look at that who have been trained in a more impressionist way of painting. And they say, Oh, you simply can't paint that way because you're only working on one part at a time. And painting is all about seeing the ensemble all at once. Well, the problem with that impressionist beef with area by area painting is that all great paintings were painted area by area before like the end of the 19th century. <laughs> they just all were. So it must've worked if, you know, Van Eyck and, and, and Rembrandt and Michelangelo painted this way. I mean, they did pretty good stuff, I guess. Uh, but the reason, one of the reasons why they could make it work is because they had sketches, which is a kind of blueprint, right? I mean, because if you're an architect who was trying to build a house without a blueprint, and you start with like this little, you know, part of the house here, and then you build off that and, and you have no plan. Of course, that's never going to work. The only reason you can build something like St. Peter's area by area, stone by stone, part by part is because they have these brilliant blueprints and models of what the actual result is going to look like that you do in advance of actually starting the, the project right mm. like when I, last time i was in rome i was at an exhibition of like michelangelo or something like that and they had the most beautiful wooden models of some church that they were constructed i don't remember if it was saint peter's or what it was but it was probably about this big and in itself it was a work of art I mean, it was, it was wooden, it was varnished. It was just a mini building. And in the past, like these great architects, they wouldn't, they would have blueprints obviously, but they would also want to see the thing in three dimensions before they even lay the first stone. Mm. You can imagine Bernini or Borromini or one of these great architects obsessing over this beautiful model and turning it and looking at it from different angles and imagining all the different vantage points that this part would be seen from that part, et cetera, et cetera. And really just getting into the, the thing before the workmen like start laying the foundation or doing anything. So I find that having a plan, having a blueprint is one of the ways that helps kind of keep you on track, even though, as you say, you are going to be a different person from day to day in your work, especially if it's an ambitious project. I mean, something like St. Peter's took like over a lifetime to build and some art, some paintings we take 10 years, you know, uh, Messonnier worked on this painting Friedland that's at the Met. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a very good painting. I mean, it's good, but it's not great. 
long story short, it was the most expensive painting that had ever been sold ever when he finished it. This is like the end of the 19th century. Now it's like worth basically nothing and no one cares about it. But he worked on it for 10 years and it was considered his masterpiece. And when you're working on something over such a long period of time, I never worked on something for 10 years, but I can imagine that it helps to have some kind of recording or a memory of what your initial inspiration was because Mm. you're gonna get bored with it too i mean forget like it's syncing up and it all looking unified that's one problem but just getting bored with your painting is also something that you have to remember and one of the things that the sketch or the study one of the purposes that it serves as well is like recording your initial inspiration your initial zeal for your project before you get bored with it because Mm. when you first come up with your idea you're like this is great this is going to be the best painting ever i'm so inspired i'm so excited a couple weeks a couple months into your project you're probably going to be thinking this is the worst thing ever it looks terrible (laughs) i'm really embarrassed and i don't want to keep working on this that's normal that's human everyone's going to feel that So I don't know if the study always solves that, but it certainly helps kind of, you remember this moment. It's like a recording of that zeal that you had. It's a recording of that inspired moment. Mm. And there was this huge um, discussion in the academies in France in the 19th century over the sketch versus the finish. And this is where Delacroix and Ang are having this battle because Delacroix is firmly on the side of paintings, finished paintings, maintaining that sketchy and spontaneous quality. Okay. He Mm -hmm. wants it to look fresh. Ang, on the other hand, he wants his paintings to look perfectly finished. He doesn't want there to be any brushstrokes, no painterliness whatsoever, because that's his Greco-Roman ideal of what painting should be. So that, um, that battle, so to speak, rages on through a lot of the 19th century. And eventually, of course, the sketchers win, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we look in the 20th century and late 19th century, Sargent, Zorn, all the way up to whoever, the highly finished painters, like they definitely take a back seat. Maybe they're starting to come back. I don't know. Anyway, a long-winded response. I'm like going off on a tangent. This is, the, I, I think I think the tangent is is welcome. And I think that there's there's like a how would you call it like the prelims to that Delacroix and Ang battle uh, is some is something like at, at least for me is something like what we see in the difference between Corot's final paintings and then Corot's like sketches and plein air same thing mm. with with Constable right with Constable there's some and and I would consider myself you know, whether it's, uh, I wouldn't say ideologically, but just temperamentally, I'm closer to to the ink tradition. Not that I can, you know, get to that level, but with what I end up producing again and again, this, despite my best efforts. Mm. Um, but when I look at, at Constable's, you know, finished pieces, I keep on thinking, man, you know, the sketch is better. Like, mm. why, why, why is that, do you think? Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, situation, and a lot of it comes down to personal preference, but hmm, it's a really good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think that there's a certain energy, there's a certain energetic quality in the sketch that, uh, that can get covered over. 
Mm. I get more sensitive to this the more that I paint, especially when I was starting out. My obsession was with finish. It happens to a lot of people. A lot of young artists who get involved in the atelier thing, they think mostly in terms of finish as being like the ultimate goal, like is having that that refined surface where you can't see any brushstrokes and all that. And I think that's valuable. But on the other end of the spectrum, it can become dead a little bit. Mm -hmm. It loses a certain energy. So, you know, in painting now, I, I primarily try and work in like two passes. I really, well, I think about the painting as having two stages. Mm. The first stage is being the abosh or the underpainting. And the second stage is being the finish. This comes out of the French 19th century. Um, now they thought of the abosh as being a sketchy. It's being sort of energetic. It's kind of a little rough. It's not overly refined. And then the next pass would be the, they called it the fini, the fini, which is like the finish, which means like the smoothing out, the softening, the refinement, et cetera, et cetera. And the more I paint, the more, I value the abosh, the first layer, as being almost an end to itself. Before, I just thought, oh, the abosh is just something that you have to do so you can cover it up with your next smooth layer, which is the most important part. But now when I paint, I try and think a lot more of not to what not to cover up. And mm -hmm. I try and do a better job on my abosh. Cause I want my, I want to leave some of that spontaneousness and some of that energetic brushwork in the final pass and not sort of smooth everything out in a way that's kind of become lifeless a little bit mm. because uh, that can happen. I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you kind of touched on it because I think that is what brings your work a little bit back to the Baroque tradition, right? When we look at Rubens's work, a lot of the time you would think, man, look at that quote-unquote finished portrait and and then you look up close there's one specific one that i'm thinking about that is that is uh in the prado uh portrait of saint paul and it's just the whole shadow side of the face is straight up the underpainting mm. just like completely uncovered and mm. and and working miraculously with uh with the context of of the rest of the piece and mm. i think that this is actually an amazing way to keep air inside of inside of your paintings because as mm. as you're saying once you're once you're obsessing over the finish you you there's a there's a definite trade-off going on like for all this refinement and 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 you know hardcore composing you're losing some some level of spontaneity that exists in the earlier layers and i mm. think uh you've you've really hit on on an amazing way to to combine the two so i'm oh, really thanks. yeah yeah yeah. i'm really i'm really happy to hear that it's uh it's on your mind and there's there's also something else that i'm kind of thinking about when uh when i'm trying to contemplate this uh this subject and you tell me what you think about it to me there's something about art and not 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 just like visual art per se but also like dance theater music very very strongly Uh, where you want to feel kind of connected to the person who's who is producing the artwork and I think some a, a really good flavor a really good uh, um, flavor to put into your work if you want to be relatable is is a touch of vulnerability and mm. I think vulnerability is 
almost inherent to sketches. When you're not finishing mm. something up, then then something something about who you are as a person uh, mm. with all the flaws that you have is still in the work. And all mm. of that gets really covered up when we are obsessing over finishing, finishing, finishing. Mm. We're covering up those those uh, layers of vulnerability. And then you look at it and and you feel like there's nowhere in, no, no mm. way into the work to really... Yeah. Um, get in, get in, get get some contact with the person who produced that piece. So something mm-hmm. that I'm thinking about these days is how to, and this is difficult because the ego fights against it. You know, you want to put your best foot out there, the, your best foot forward, your best self out there. You want mm-hmm. a painting that represents really the best of you. But it's those vulnerable moments I feel that often are the the most compelling parts of an artwork and how how to be brave enough to kind of leave them in mm-hmm. is uh is on my mind what do you think about that uh i think it's true i mean the whole sort of sketch finish thing it also it can relate to other aspects of life beyond just painting and even just art uh there in the renaissance i think we, we see more finish right um and then as you move into the baroque as you mentioned, you see more of an embracing of these kind of spontaneous qualities. And I think that was kind of the flowering of this whole mentality is um, pursuing perfection, but then also knowing when not to be too perfect. Because with, listen, I'm not much into philosophy, but you think of neoplatonism and these heady concepts that the renaissance guys had like um raphael he wanted to make a perfectly pristine surface like area to area like every brushstroke is perfect and it's perfectly finished and then you have rembrandt he's kind of just like mushing things around and making a mess and then you see people like velasquez he's embracing kind of making a mess too and it's kind of like i think of it as like a look that you might see like a rock star has a certain look like Mick Jagger. He, you know, he's working on his look, right? His, but his hair is good, but it's just disheveled. His hair is just, his t-shirts kind of off just in the right way so that it doesn't look too refined. It it's like, I worked on my look, but I didn't work on it too much because if you work on your look too much, you're kind of a dork. Mm. So there's a little bit of a casualness and an insouissance, that's the French word, this insouissance, which is kind of just like a little bit of just like, I don't give a fuck. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I try, but at the end of the day, I don't give a fuck. That's, and that's a thing. That's a thing. Because the thing is, when someone's trying too hard, you see they're trying too hard and you're just like, you're trying too hard. You're good. You're brilliant, but you're trying too hard. And that's not cool. It's not cool to try too hard. So this was something that like they discovered not only in painting, but also in the court and in manners in Europe in the uh, 17th century, you see uh, Baldessare Castiglione's The Courtier, which is this book about uh, manners and how a man should behave and act in court to be like the Mac dad at that time. It was about being perfect and about, doing everything right, but not too right that you came across as a square. Mm. So I think that social custom extends also into painting. And I think that affected painting. And you have someone like Velasquez who was a man of the court 
he wanted nothing more than to be uh, someone who would earn a title. He wanted to become an aristocrat. So he was hyper focused and obsessed on courtly manners and behaviors and customs. But in his personal style, as well as his painterly style, as he matured, he was perfectly content to be kind of bravura, mm. which is like, I don't care. Mm. I studied this painting game for like 20 years, but at the end of the day, I don't care. And it's a certain attitude that is just really, it's just hot. It's just sexy. Mm. And there's power in it. And I think that embracing some of that sketchiness within your refinement, because yeah, we can become as a, as a species overly refined people. I mean, there's certain periods in history when like things just become so overly refined that it's like you're constricted, mm. right? You look at like people wearing clothes in the 19th century and they have like the high collar and it's like buttoned really tight. And they're just like, and you're just like, how the fuck could people live that way? It's too much. But on the other end of the spectrum, you know, I go down to get like a bagel at the deli and I see people who are walking in in dead winter and it's like college students, they're wearing like flip-flops and like, uh, you know, some hoodie that says like, you know, college on it. And I'm just like, bro, you got to put a little bit more effort into your <laughs> existence, right? <laughs> So oh it's about God. finding a medium between, mm. you know, the refinement and the more sophisticated and nuanced way of being, and then a more savage and spontaneous and, you know, I, I don't give a fuck, like screw convention, mm. right? There are two poles and refinement fin finishes on one and sketches on the other. So negotiating that space is really interesting. Wow, this is one of the best ways I've heard this explained. I'm I'm gonna take this into my afternoon painting session for yes, sure. It, this is it. it's it's great. It's it's whenever whenever we can we can translate something like classical art to attitudinal um explanations that relate to contemporary life, I think it's it's super um super important. And also I'm gonna I'm gonna try to connect this to another thing that I wanted to ask you about but now now it it sounds like it's gonna it's gonna connect seamlessly though the question might sound weird so the thing about your drawing which I think you're you're one of the best draftsmen alive today hands down no doubt and I'm gonna tell you why and I think it it connects to this uh to this thing that you were talking about um a lot of a lot of your drawing leaves room for the paper You leave room for the for the surface to to kind of be part you don't necessarily it doesn't necessarily feel like you you're finishing it all or there there's this kind of drawing style that you know I appreciate and it, it it impresses me that comes out of the Florence Academy where they would draw with like black and white and then it just all comes to the middle and in the middle you see like a little bit of paper and it's you know it's 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 mind-bogglingly impressive that they can mm -hmm. identify that exact middle value like that value and, and and leave the paper like only there it's so correct but it's so correct that it's just sometimes it's exhausting and your your drawing looks so nonchalant it's as if you put like some pigments on your hand and just and they stuck to the paper where they need to go and and it, it is it is that quality it's that that coolness where you feel like i'm gonna put whatever i need to put on and the rest you know screw it 
Um, and it, it reminds me a lot of um, Rubens's drawings, Holbein's drawings, Van Dyck's um, grisaille, like his, his kind of black and white approach that leaves a ton of imprimatura just kind of like raw mm-hmm. on the surface. So I just kind of had, I don't even know if there's a question mark at the end of this, but I, I, I <laughs> maybe, maybe we can put a question mark like this. Like, wh- what do you think about uh, when, you're, when you're drawing? Like, what are your primary, what are the primary things that you're trying to capture? And what would you say is your aesthetic guideline for producing these extraordinary works? Oh, well, thank, uh, first, thanks for that compliment. Um, I, uh, I, this is going to be disappointing, but honestly, I, I, I lament my drawing very much generally. I don't feel like I'm a very good draftsman, to be honest. And uh, I was actually lamenting to Colleen uh, just a couple nights ago about how I thought she was such a better draftsman than I was. And she, she took this as offense because she thought that it meant I wasn't complimenting her paintings enough and I was elevating her drawings over her paintings, which she took offense to. But I said, no, no, it's just a, just a genuine compliment that I feel like she's a much better draftsman. And I feel like... I feel a little intimidated by it, but also I just don't draw anymore. I, anything that you've seen that's on my Instagram is probably the last drawings I've done. And they've been three or four years ago because I just paint now. And uh, so it's difficult. I mean, I, I want to help, but it's difficult to put myself in the headspace of drawing, but I think it's, it relates similarly to painting in that, allowing the ground to show through, as you said, and, and not like, closing the surface, I think is really I- important. And I find that's important with painting as well. I, I move more and more to that um, because uh, that energy and that feeling of spontaneity can be closed up and it can be overly finished. Um, and that can happen in a drawing as, as well as a painting. And I think doing that type of cast drawing is, is really a great exercise uh, mm. to do at a certain point uh, where you are working across the form and you're, you have your pencil on every little nook and cranny, every facet of the, the volume of the form. Really experiencing that I think is incredible and I think it really, really helps. Um, but that being said, when you look at the drawings of Rubens or you look at the drawings of Watteau, the, the economy is um it's very obvious an economy of means and that it doesn't they don't ever look like they took more than you know an hour to do who knows how long they took to do you know you don't really know unless you were there but they don't look over labored because i think the dutch had a saying i don't remember the exact but it's like something that is like over labored is tiresome to look at Mm. something it's like a little bit more pithy than that but that's the idea so you might marvel, oftentimes students, myself, when I was younger, you marvel at that amazing cast drawing and every little dot and smudge is taken out. And it's just like, it looks like a cloud of graphite, just like going over the surface of the paper. And it's astonishing. You say, I can't believe that's a drawing. Uh, and that's great. But I find that sometimes that can be a little bit dull to look at. Uh, for a longer period because it lacks some of that spontaneity that a more economical way of drawing provides. Now, of course, again, it's that conflict. If you go back to just being too sketchy, there's not enough information there to keep the viewer interested. Mm. 
And I think that can be the, the downside of something that's too sketchy. And I see that a lot. I mean, on Instagram, there's so many sketchy painters. Some are more talented than others. Um, and I almost always like a good sketch immediately. So I look at my phone, I'm like, oh, that's great. Like it. But then I maybe probably forget about it, like literally 10 seconds later. I'm just like, on to the next thing. <laughs> because... I mean, a good sketch is great, but like how long can a good sketch really hold our attention? Uh, mm. And the answer is probably not that long. It doesn't mean I don't like a good sketch. Everyone loves a good sketch. Everyone loves a Sargent sketch. Everyone loves a Zorn sketch. Um, and I think they've probably taken the art, the, the sketchy art, the furthest that it's ever been taken by um, anyone but just a little sketcheroo is not really enough to keep me there mm. because you want to grab the viewer. You have to, you know, you got to give a thumb stopper, right? As that scroll is going through, there's all of those images. You're just, this sucks. I don't care about that. Bam. What's going to get you to stop at an image? A sketch is great at that because it's got that pump. It's got uh, that punch, that pizzazz, whatever you want to call it. But you got to keep them there, which is like, so you entice them with something that's going to get them to stop. But then once they're there, is there anything to keep you there or are you just shallow? Because the thing is, a lot of sketches are wonderful and a lot of sketch artists are wonderful, but many of them are just incredibly shallow beneath the surface mm -hmm. of that little thing that they've been able to do or one or two hours. And you will not be remembered because mm -hmm. your shallowness uh, will be revealed. Whereas Rembrandt, he's sketchy, but he's not shallow at all because you see his sketchiness and yet somehow there is this hidden depth and nuance and mystery that you never discover. You're always, how did he do that? What is, what's the mystery? What's the, the alchemical process going on that makes this thing what it is? It never tires you out. You never you'll never find the answer to the riddle. That's why you mm. always keep coming back to it. Uh, and that's an artist on another level. And I think that's something that, you know, like that's a good thing to try and be that type of artist, but it's not easy. I'm having a hard time with it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, can I, can I uh, drill down and ask what are you lamenting about specifically when you look at your drawings and you think they're shockingly, you think they're insufficient uh, what is it? What, what do you, what do you wish your drawings would have? Uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, that's it. Cause if it was that, then you'd be able to solve it pretty easily. Right. I mean, cause if it was like, oh, I need to work on my edges more, or I need to work on this, that, uh, then you could develop like a, a simple program where you could just study those things more often and then just improve that part of your painting. Uh, but I, I think for me, I think the thing that's most frustrating, we probably all experience this to some degree is like feeling like there's some kind of, uh, level beyond where you're at that you could get to, but you don't know exactly how to yet. Mm. And I think that's a healthy thing. It's healthy to feel like there are things beyond your level that you can attain that are possible um, but you don't know how, and it's frustrating, but 
that's how you grow. I would imagine. I mean, if you don't have that in you, then you're not going to grow. If you're like, okay, I am where I am. I'm pretty happy with where I am. I don't really care what's beyond where I'm at. So I'll just stay where I am. I think that's a huge number of people, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that's a huge number of artists, actually. And the reason why I think that is because year in, year out, you see their work and it looks more or less the same, right? Um, and then it is what it is. Uh, but then I think sometimes, you know, in your soul, you can have this sort of nagging feeling that like there's something outside. Like if you're an explorer and you sailed from here to there, and everyone in the crew is like, all right, guys, we made it. We found the edge of the world. Let's go back now. But then the 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 one who's that really tenacious explorer is going to be like, no, but I just know that there's some shit that's even further out there that we got to get to. Mm. And then he can't sleep at night because he's tossing and turning and he's like sweating in his bed. And, the, and they're all like, no, we got to go back. But he, he makes it, we got to go forward, guys. We got to go forward. So I think that's a kind of like mentality that is important to have. It's not always fun. And that doesn't necessarily even going to mean you're going to get anywhere. You might, maybe you're at the end of the world and you keep going further and you're going to fall off the edge and you're fucked. Maybe you should have gone back. I don't know. But um, I think it's just about having something that's outside of your grasp. Mm. And wanting something that's outside of your grasp. I think we all have that to some degree. I think some people just try and act on it more. And I think others maybe deal with that in another way. I'm not sure. What do you think? I think, well, I, re- I relate a hundred percent, even when I said like, shockingly, you're dissatisfied. I'm, I, I would actually be shocked if you were satisfied because it's, it's, it's always the case that the best artists out there, the ones who have walked, you know, the most impressive uh, road are the, are the ones are the ones who are constantly looking forward and how to grow and how to improve. And I really think that that, that drive stems from a feeling of dissatisfaction. If I'm mm-hmm. happy with where I'm at, mm-hmm. uh, why would I move anywhere? And so exactly. this, is, this is something that I find that I, I tell students all the time that the first thing you really need to develop if you really want to grow is a feeling of dissatisfaction about your work, but not one that paralyzes you but rather one that we can act on. If you can look at your work and say, mm-hmm. I can't do this yet. This makes my work really, you know, subpar. Then we can say, great, now we know where to go. Let's try to walk mm-hmm. that path. And for a lot of people who don't know how to do that, here's a fun exercise. Look at your work and imagine that somebody you hate made it. Then you would have a lot of stuff mm-hmm. to say about that work. You would suddenly be like, <laughs> oh, you know, that drawing is really sloppy. That shoulder's out of place, whatever. <laughs> it's so easy for us to, to find like stuff to say about, about other people. But then when we look at ourselves, we just kind of mm-hmm. get into these paralyzing loops that don't lead us anywhere productive. Mm-hmm. But I totally agree with you that, you know, a feeling of dissatisfaction, a cultivated feeling of dissatisfaction, one that mm. you allow yourself to kind of get up in the morning and live with, go to sleep at night with, and, and, and kind of being comfortable with the constant dissatisfaction of your work, I think is a prerequisite for, for mm. developing as, as an artist. And people who, who try to find confidence through art, 
forget about it. It's like, mm. that's, that's just, the better you become, the more you understand that if there ever was a way to complete the journey of painting, it just should, it just spans more than a human life cycle, right? We mm. just, I, I think we can't do this in a hundred years. We can't do this in 120. Who knows? Maybe the end to the journey, once we, once medical science develops sufficiently and we can live 250 years, maybe we'll see the end. But right now, this is a journey uh, that we all sign on to knowing that we're not seeing the end of it. Mm. And, 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 and unless you are at peace with this existentially and are willing to be constantly unhappy to some degree with, with mm. your work, mm-hmm. you're, not, you're not going far. That's what I think. Mm. I, I really like the, what you said with, um, uh, you said cultivated dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important addition to make because uh, you know, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, I, I know people who are are so deeply dissatisfied with their own work that they can't keep painting, mm. that it's just, it's really difficult for them. Um, and that's not a place where you want to be because then you can't improve in that way either. So you can't be too satisfied with yourself, but you also can't be too dissatisfied with yourself because if you're so dissatisfied with yourself, you're going to be like, I just don't want to do this. Uh, so, you know, cultivated dissatisfaction or you could say mindful dissatisfaction, I think is, is a really important thing. And, uh, and it really shifts from day to day too. I mean, there's some days you're walking down the street, you're just like, I'm just killing this painting game. And then there are other days where it's just the complete opposite. And you're like, I, I'm a complete failure. Everything I've done is shit. I should just stop right now. And, uh, probably somewhere in between those two things is like the, the healthiest and state to be in. Um, although I don't think anyone can occupy that state constantly. We, we all sort of oscillate between these, these poles, but. Interesting. I I'm, I'm growing increasingly conscious of, of your time, but I just want to get a, oh. another topic in there, sure. uh, because this is something that I'm incredibly envious of to add, to add to the list. So there's, there is something that I, I tend to tell people, uh, that they kind of have to do in order to be successful artists, blah, 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 just because this is, this is what has really helped me. And despite the fact that it's really not fun, I'm going to get to the point eventually, uh, which is, you got to be out there. You got to have a website. You got to have a bio. You got to have a thing. You got to be present, social media, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. I feel like you somehow managed to sidestep that. Like I, I was looking for your bio just so that I don't kind of have to trouble you. People will have, by this point, have heard the bio that I recorded for you, which I had <laughs> to ask you for and I think is brilliant. But you're kind of you're kind of successfully living that hermit life, that that dream life. We don't you you seem not to be having to do all this uh, digital PR stuff. How are you doing it? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think you can kind of choose how much you want to do and how much you don't want to do. I mean, I think there are a lot of opportunities that I would have more of if I was in more pursuit of some of those things and was more more, um, fastidious about doing those type of tasks Um, so I can't really say that it wouldn't help if I tried it, maybe it would be better for my career. Um, I just happen to be in the mentality, whereas I'm just putting 95% of everything just into the paintings and just trying to make the paintings good. And cause I enjoy it. And that's the thing that I think for me is just the most important thing. 
and then everything else, you know, for good or ill kind of like just gets left to the wayside a little bit. Mm. And, uh, you know, my mom can't stand it, to be honest. She, she's for years, she's really hounded me about getting a website and, and some people, you know, like she's, she's very deeply triggered, Ken, about <laughs> the fact that I don't have these things. And, uh, but maybe in the future uh, I will, and maybe I won't, I don't know. Uh, but in terms of advice, I can't really even say if it's working out or not. So I don't know to like recommend it or say you should or shouldn't do this. I think everyone's different. I think some people are really good at that. And there are people I look at who I think are excellent, that sort of thing that I admire, like, uh, oh gosh, Dave Kasson's one, for instance. Mm -hmm. He has a huge Instagram following. He's got, I mean, if he, if it's there, he has it. He's got oh, his website. He's got this product line is that it's very entrepreneurial and fastidious in that way. And I respect that tremendously. And I, I look at that and I say, I should be more like that. I should have this, that, and the other thing. Um, and maybe I will someday, but I just don't know if it's much as my nature to be that way. And mm. I just don't think that's in my skill set. I've actually been looking for people here and there to kind of fill in the gaps in terms of like an assistant or someone who does the kind of more media, social PR aspect of things. Uh, so that might be something to watch out for in the next like couple of years or whatever. Um, because I think professionally you do want to have people who, uh, can fill in the gaps of the skills that you're just not that good at. Mm. I'm not really great at self-promotion doing these things, but there are people out there who are just excellent at it. And, uh, yeah, I need to hook up with someone like that and, you know, and develop that aspect of it. And it'll happen eventually, I think, or not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Ama amazing. Me personally, you know, I just have to say that what's going through my mind whenever I have to sit down and edit all those Instagram videos and all these like things that I'm that I'm up to is is literally like one day I'll be like Will St. John. I'll just I'll just be in the studio painting, not not having to spend so much time uh doing this stuff. But maybe maybe you're right. Maybe eventually I I have to allow some delegation, let, let other people take care of it. Mm. Right now, I'm just too much of a control freak. Um, but that's, that's my personal psychological journey. Perhaps mm. we, can, we can end on this. What would you say at present, like from where, from where you are right now, would be like your dream accomplishment? Where do you want to mm. be in like whatever, 20 years? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I, mean, I don't really have too many like... Um, worldly aspirations in terms of, Oh, I wish I was on this magazine or I wish I was in that museum. I mean, to be honest, like, I mean, I have my vanity just like everyone else, but I think a lot of it is just total bullshit. I mean, and I think uh, a lot of what people esteem is, is bullshit and, and is also just an extension of their vanity. Uh, so when I think of like the accomplishments that I want, I just think of like particular pieces, little dream masterpieces that I have in my head that like I would someday like to try and do I mean it's kind of vain to say they're masterpieces but everyone has masterpieces in their in their imagination of what they're going to do but yeah I mean I have goals in terms of more and more ambitious pieces that I'd like to accomplish in the next you know especially the next five years I think I there's some things I really want to do and if I can paint those pictures 
I will feel some satisfaction, mm. whether they're accepted or not. Um, because I'm very aware and we, we all have to be this way, being sort of more representational artists or more traditional artists, the fickleness of the world and that how the world doesn't really care that much about or this type of work. And it doesn't esteem it as highly as many things in American culture, for instance. I mean, if you really want to be highly esteemed in American culture, uh, don't try and paint like uh, an old master, right? I mean, you can get some recognition for it, but if you want like the big recognition, you got to do something like Miley Cyrus or Michael Jackson. I mean, you got to start dancing on stage and do a stupid moonwalk and all of a sudden you'll be, rem- I mean, I love it, but that's the sort of thing that's going to, you know, make your wildest dreams come true. You got to do a little, you know, uh, on stage. So I, I'm realistic about the limitations of that for American fame. And as a result, I've kind of set my expectations for recognition. What I think is a realistic level, hopefully. (laughs) Um, So I keep my dreams to like the things that I want to accomplish in terms of my expressions and challenging myself to just do harder things and try and push myself to do more than I can do now. And, uh, and we'll see, stay tuned. I don't know if it'll happen or not, but I'm going to try. Well, we're definitely staying tuned for these masterpieces. I'm definitely looking forward to them. (laughs) And, uh, so Will, this was a pleasure. Could you let people know where they can find you? Yeah. My Instagram is Will St. John art at, uh, no, it's at Will St. John art on Instagram. Beautiful. And we'll put uh, the link to that in the show notes, Uh, obviously. And if any other links come up, uh, by the time we release this episode or even after you let me know, and uh, I'll be happy to put that down there. And Will, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. It was an honor. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it grow, please take a moment to subscribe, rate it highly, and share it with a friend. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show and have access to exclusive content, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash kengoshen. For online lessons, please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons. Thanks again and see you next time.